Good morning, WDBC family. Today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 9, from verses 18 and onward. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed on the, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Well, good morning, uh, WDBC uh, family. It's great to have you uh, this morning. It's also good to have any kind of uh, scrollers on Facebook who just saw the live Facebook feed kind of come through. Uh, welcome, my name's Stephen. I'm an associate pastor here at WDBC. Uh, and I hope that this morning is beneficial for you. Uh, on Wednesday night, I don't know if you're like me, but you're probably scrambling to... Uh, get the, the census form done. I know it was kind of one of those, you're all over in the middle of the night, and it's like, oh, I've got, to, I've got to do this thing. And so you get your phone out, thinking it's going to take you like all of two seconds to kind of get that done, and lo and behold, they want to know if you have asthma, and you think, well, this is going to take a lot longer than I first initially expected. If you're anything like me, you kind of just pass the phone off to the person sitting next to you, because you didn't want to fill it out. <laughs> um, but the census form was a... It was a very strongly felt thing I felt this year. Um, we had it inside the churches. I know that a lot of Christian leaders and a lot of pastors felt very strongly about it and they were teaching us, make sure you, you tick the box. Make sure you tick your denomination that you belong to or make sure you at least write Christian in on it. And the reason is, is because, well, I think it comes as no revelation to us, there's fears and there's anxieties both in the congregation and in leaders of what kind of country we're slowly turning into. A country that no longer really reflects the values of God. Make sure you tick them in, they say, because what we want to do is we want to make sure that they know that we're here, that we have worship that we want to still be able to do, and we want to be able to do that unhindered. Even in times of COVID, I was shocked to find out that right now it's illegal to get married in this state. You cannot legally get married under COVID law and regulation. Marriage to a Christian is a faith. It's a faith lifestyle. We get married because we believe that it is actually the divine presence of God that unites man and woman together in holy matrimony. And so the government will say, well, there's essentials and there's unessentials. It's essential, for instance, to move in with your partner if you'd like to fornicate and cohabitate together. But it's unessential 
to get married to your significant other. But it's not just in COVID that we kind of find these kind of laws and regulations coming in from the government. We see that there's fears and anxieties in Christian schools, that the staffing have to really start to think about, well, what kind of world are we coming into where they get to regulate whether or not we have people of beliefs, the same beliefs as our staff members. And I know that it's not only in schools, it's also in churches. There's been cases just recently where there have been pastors that don't condone nor want to see same-sex couples take place as a leadership in the church. And they remove them from these places and yet they catch heat from the people around them and from the local authorities. Ministers that no longer will be able to practice shepherding their flock according to their conscience and their faith in God because the state might look to impose laws And so we have a governing, legislating what we can and we can't believe according to God. We know it's in public spheres. There's places where they're shutting down Christian voices, political movements even. And the public domain says, we don't want to hear what you have to say. And it's also in our own personal lives. We're on the precipice of having a law enforced in certain states where you won't be able to pray for certain things. And if you're caught doing so, you might face up to 10 years jail time. And so we have this law and this legislation in the land that's kind of putting a chokehold around Christianity. Here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. And I think the fear and anxiety, it's kind of warranted, isn't it? Our country looks like it's getting darker, not brighter. And it's slowly impeding on our faith. And it's getting to a point where it's saying, well, if you keep practicing it outside just your little church, there might be consequences. So the question is, how do we move forward in this inevitable changing world in this country? What are we going to put our hope in? What do we do when faith to exercise it is tough? And realistically, why bother? If it's just going to be a hard trot, why bother? Why not just kind of compromise on a few things? And I bring all of this to mind because A, it is very real and it's present, but I also bring it to mind because this is exactly what the Jews were feeling under government authority in a Roman world. The authorities above them, they said, you can practice your religion, sure, go to your temple, offer your sacrifice, do your worship, have that in that place, but don't go bringing it around here. It's not to come into the public sphere. In fact, the emperor himself would call himself a god. And there was also a bit of a spiritual strain for them. They prayed that there was a god who had authority over all things, all things were in his hand. And yet it really seemed to be in an emperor's hand who had nothing to do with God. And we see that it is much like today. What's the response of the church? What are we to do? The sermon this morning is titled, Suffering, the Way of Salvation. Sounds morbid, but we're going to get there. It is titled so because Jesus, for the first time in Luke's gospel, is going to reveal what kind of Messiah he is. He is the Messiah who suffers. And our three points that we're going to look at this morning is this. Number one, you're going to need to endure suffering. It's just part and parcel of being the disciple. And to do that, you're going to need personal conviction. What I mean by this when I say that, if everyone were to turn their back on Christ, even the church that you're a part of, would you still follow? Is that your personal conviction? 
Secondly, to endure suffering, you're going to know what your conviction is. You're going to have to know what it is. What exactly are your beliefs about Jesus? Is it enough just to say, well, he's Messiah and, and kind of go about your day? And number three, to endure suffering, you're going to need to know what it's all for. In other words, why are you a Christian? What is your hope? What, what is the goal? Do you know what Christianity is even about? Now, with those points and those questions in mind, we're going to pray and then we're going to hit the text. Heavenly Father, you never promised that following your son would be a walk in the park. But Father, you promised that you'd be with us. And that's enough for us who call your son the Messiah. I pray that you'd be with us as we move through your word. Amen. When we began our time in Luke, I don't know if you remember, but I taught you about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how in the middle you kind of got that, that page gap between the two. And inside that page gap, I taught you that there was a significance of 400 years, 400 years pass from Malachi until Matthew. And in Protestant churches, such as the one that we're in, we call that the 400 years of silence. And we call it the 400 years of silence because it is a time when God didn't raise any prophets to give new and fresh revelation to the people. However, there are some churches outside of Protestant realms, such as the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, that they have books in between this gap, and they're called the Apocrypha. So inside this 400 years, you have the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha, it's just historical writings that the Jews ha uh, had had at the time of how they remained God in this changing world where Greco-Roman rule was starting to come over them and how they tried to exercise and live out their faith. And during this time, there was a king, a Syrian king, named Antiochus IV. And this king tried to enforce Greek lifestyle upon the Jews and their way of life to eradicate their faith and replace it with something else. And there's three ways in which he kind of did this. Firstly, he took away God's word from them, or he took away the Torah law. If you don't have the word of God, then you can't practice your worship to that God. So he took away the Torah. The second thing that he did is he stopped them from practicing according to their covenant. That is, he stopped the males from being allowed to be circumcised so they could no longer identify with their God. And thirdly, what he did was he defiled the temple. He went into the sanctuary of God where only God's people are allowed to worship and he set up multiple idols in there and he said, well, it's just open for everyone. We're allowed to come and worship anything and this is how the state's gonna run. You've gotta conform. And so we have here, in essence, a government legislating, here's what you'll believe about your faith. We'll tell you what it is. We're going to mitigate some of the things out of there, so it's open for everyone, and this will be the God that we have, and we'll just make it for everyone. Now, this didn't go down too well with the Jews, and there was a priest named Mattathias, who during this time, there was a policy saying that all Jews must sacrifice to a foreign God, and Mattathias ran the man through, and then he got his sons, and he created a guerrilla army and attacked Jerusalem, purified the temple, and took the whole place back. And you can read that in the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha. 
Mattathias and his sons, especially Judas Maccabees, they are renowned and known for in their time as being messiahs. They are known for being anointed ones of God, given to God's people to liberate them from the government authority and oppression so that people can be back in peace with their Lord, practicing the Torah law. That's what they're known for. And it came down that through the ages, people time and time again, men time and time again, pointed to themselves and said, I am the Messiah, I have come to liberate the people, and they rebelled against the Romans or the Greeks or whoever it was that was over the top of them. And so what got instilled in the ideology that formed over this 400 years, on and on and on again, was that when the Messiah comes, he will be a political figure, he will be this king that will be able to cast out the enemy through might and force. Even Jesus' disciples, they had this thought in their head, when the Messiah comes, This is what he will do. And that's the messianic hope that Jesus was speaking into. And so when we come to the very beginning where Jesus says, who do the crowds say that I am? The crowds are well like, well, he's got power and authority. And so Elijah, Moses, and John. There seemed to be a bit of a rumor circulating around that John was back from the dead. Even Herod had kind of heard that rumor. But whatever it is, he's great. He's someone great, like the ancient prophets. Happy to even give him something like Moses. Jesus isn't really looking for a popularity poll. (laughs) Hey boys, what does everyone think about me? Do they think I'm someone awesome? He's interested in the conviction that his disciples have of who it is that they say they follow. He wants a decisive stance. It, by nature, is actually a loaded question. Am I Israel's hope? And he's not sitting there asking for an opinion, kind of like what we do today. Well, how do you like to see Jesus? Oh, Thomas, oh, you think I'm like a priest figure. Oh, that's nice. Oh, John, you're the kind of friend that sticketh closer than a brother type of Jesus. Am I the Messiah? Am I the Messiah? And what will the 12 say? What will Simon Peter say when he looks at this man, Jesus? We have to think about all that Jesus, uh, Peter, sorry, has seen up until this point. Think about Peter when he gets home and his mum's sick and Jesus heals her. Think about when he's crying before Jesus in the boat saying, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. Think about him looking at Jesus as he yells at a storm and the storm is quietened. Well, think about the most recent, that God, Jesus, is passing out bread like manna from heaven. And Peter is watching this. And was it in that moment that it clicked? And he went, aha, just like Moses. Is that what he was thinking? We need to know what brings Peter to such a conviction that he's going to say, you are God's Messiah. And the answer to this is in the first five words of verse 18. Once, while Jesus prayed. Luke, time and time again, is going to show the prayer life of Jesus that Jesus' ministry was dependent upon his Father and that every time Jesus prays, 
God reveals something. God brings revelation. Jesus prays at his baptism. Heavens are opened up. God says, this is my son, listen to him. And the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Jesus prays and God reveals the apostles to whom will send out the revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus prays at his transfiguration and the revelation comes to John, James and Peter that the law and the prophets testify to one thing, that Jesus will go to Jerusalem and suffer and be handed over. Jesus prays, Father, it's into your hands that I commit my spirit. And the centurion has revelation that a righteous man was put to death. And now Jesus is praying and God reveals to Simon Peter for the first time who it is that truly sits on the other side. What say you, Peter? Who am I to you? You are God's Messiah, he says. You see, it is divine revelation that one comes to a profession of faith to say that Jesus is the Messiah. It is divine revelation that brings you to a confession of faith to say Jesus is the Messiah. Why do you think it is that so many people can have all the same evidence, they can have all the same facts, they all excel in their logic and they come to wildly different conclusions? It's recorded that there were 5,000 men that were fed, but there could have possibly been 10 or 15 or possibly even 20,000 men, women, and children. And how many walk away and say, that's the Messiah who just fed us the bread? None. Not even Peter walks away with that confession. And it's not because personal conviction that Jesus is the Messiah is purely an act of logic or understanding that you possess, even though those things are to be employed. But it's not that. Paul says it this way. Our gospel is veiled. That is, it remains hidden. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is Paul, an extremely gifted evangelist who preaches to the wise and to the full. He will preach to a pagan and he'll preach to a philosopher. He is a man so steeped in the Old Testament with so much knowledge and skill and rhetoric in the way that he speaks. And even he knows in his finest argument, he has never won a soul to Christ because it is the power of God through the gospel message that unveils what Satan has done to this world. The personal conviction that you have has come from God. It isn't because you are logically more superior than someone else, that you somehow gained more evidence than someone else to come to your faith. It isn't simply because you grew up in a Christian home, but let it be known that God has opened your eyes to be able to see his son for who he is. This is the conviction that you are going to need in this ever-changing world. If this country becomes less and less Christian, if those who are close to you start to walk away from the faith, if the church itself just boils the kind of idea that all Jesus is, is a wise guy that shows us a wise way to live, but never has him as a crucified Messiah, will you still say, no, he is the hope of humanity for salvation? The personal conviction you're going to need as a disciple as you walk this earth is from God himself. 
After Peter reveals the identity of Jesus, Jesus is quite quick to hush them up and we always wonder why, don't we? Like, aren't we supposed to like proclaim from the rooftops what you say quietly? Isn't this the whole job of the apostle, the messenger, to send out what we now know? And Jesus quietens them and he says, no, don't tell anyone about this. He's concerned because A, the disciples really don't know what the Messiah is going to do. They have no clue. And that's why he's just about to inform them, this is what the Messiah will do. And secondly, to be throwing around Messiah and claiming someone Messiah, he knows that it's going to start an earthly or a worldly revolt that Jesus actually wants no part of. Jesus does not want a part of a worldly revolt that goes against the government authorities like that. Peter himself was not even to strike down the soldier who grasped him. And so let that be a lesson for all of us that follow Jesus or claim to. He didn't revolt against the governing authorities. He suffered under them. Please don't confuse what I'm saying. I'm not saying that in Australia we can't stand up for what is right in the eyes of God to protect the oppressed. Jesus himself protect the oppressed. I'm saying that Jesus established his rule and his reign on earth not through law and legislation, that came at the expense of others, but through dealing with the heart issue of mankind. And he dealt with it through suffering and dying. And I want to make just a little side point very quickly here, and probably speak more candidly to WDBC. Stop bad-mouthing your government if you're a part of this church. They are, by God's authority, put over you That's the will of God that this government that we have is put over us by him. And the Bible is explicitly clear on two things. If someone is the enemy of God, you pray for them. And if someone is the government in your country, you pray for them. And so if the government is the enemy of God, what do you do? You pray for them. In Timothy, it says this, I urge then, first of all, that your petitions, prayers, intercessions, your thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live at peace and a quiet life in all godliness and holiness. This is good, it pleases God, our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Pray for your government. This is the will of God. It's a little digression, but we're getting there. I want you to imagine they finally get it. Jesus is the Messiah. You'd be tapping the boys on the shoulders, wouldn't you? He's here, he's here, he's here. Yes, we're going to overthrow the enemy. The time has come. Jesus looks at him and says, actually, I've come to die for my enemies. Oh, that's a bit of a disappointment. But look who he says these enemies are. It's not the governing bodies. It's not Rome. It's you. I'm going to die under the hands of you people, over your religious leaders. You see, it's not the government, it's not the Illuminati, it's not some other conspiracy that you want to make up and say, they're the real enemy of God. The true enemy of God is the heart that does not believe it needs God to save them through the Messiah. 
You see, you could have a whole Christian church, uh, Christian church, a whole Christian country. Let's say you set one up. All policy, all procedure, everything has to happen exactly according to God's will. You could have that country and you could have not one Christian in it. That's what happened to Israel. All the policies and all the procedures of the land and not one heart wants to love God. Because the problem is it's not just forcing people to do something, it's actually transforming people. And Jesus says, I will transform and I will liberate people. How? Through suffering and dying, I will change the actual heart of the person. So praise be to God, because if Jesus came the first time by force to kill his enemies, no one's left. No one. He offered himself up to the hands of his enemies that through his death some might be saved. Jesus teaches his disciples, I must suffer. I must die. Jesus did so many things, but on this he must. This is the will of God. That he crushes his son for our sins. Is this the conviction that you hold of the Messiah? Is this what you believe about him and what he came to do? Because if it's not our understanding, then we are not a disciple. He is trying to tell them, if you are my disciple, then have this understanding of me as your Messiah. They're going to, they're thinking, we're going to step into glory. Jesus says, no, you're not. You're going to step into humiliation. You'll be humiliated on account of my name. Is that in your line of thinking? And if it isn't, I can tell you the moment that the slightest discomfort or the slightest suffering comes for saying that you're a Christian in an ever-changing world that doesn't like Christianity, you're going to fold and you're going to say to yourself, well, that actually couldn't be God's will for me. Surely God doesn't want me to have trouble in my life. And you'll do it because you have no conviction that that was the way of the Messiah. Jesus promises you there will be suffering for bearing my name. You will go through it. And it is the mark of his true disciple. And we pick it up in verse 23. He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. The beauty of this is anyone can follow. Jesus is not a closed off group. Yet anyone who follows him must follow after him. In other words, anyone who will follow him will follow him to the cross and suffer as he did. Because you're going right behind him. So his followers are to do the same. And this can kind of be broken down into two parts. First, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to lay down your plans and your wants in life. You'll have to do that. No one comes to God's will and goes, oh, that's interesting. My will and your will, God, they just lined up. That's the point of repentance. Our will does not conform to God's will. We are in rebellion. Jesus says, anyone who wants to follow me must take up the Lord's will, must take up my way of life and do as I do. You're going to have to lay down your desires. 
And secondly, the one who does follow after him will have to take up a cross. What does this mean? Well, we know that a cross eventually killed a person, but it wasn't so much about the death as it was about the humiliation. You see, you got your crossbar given to you, and you'd walk up most likely naked with your crossbar while people yelled at you and slapped you and spat on you and threw things at you. It was a mockery. You were the laughing stock. You were the butt of all the jokes as you carried the thing that was going to kill you up to your death. That was the point of the crucifixion. Not just the death, but the humiliation. And Jesus says, if you want to follow after me, you're going to have to take up this cross too. And it's not a maybe, it's a must. And when I talk about this cross, I'm not thinking illness, sickness. I'm not thinking this COVID experience. That's just the sin of a broken world that you're experiencing. That's not bearing the cross. You'll have to suffer because you bear the name of Jesus. It's distinctly different from those who are in the world. That's why Jesus says, whoever loses his life because of me will save it. You're going to suffer a loss of friends. You're going to suffer a loss of family. You're gonna suffer your status for following Jesus. People are not going to want to associate with you because they're going to be embarrassed of you. And you might have to fear suffering through the very fact that people think you're a goody two-shoes because you don't jump in on things. And you're just going to have to go with it. And they might mock you and slam you and belittle you and it doesn't matter. You're going to have to do it. And you're even going to have to sacrifice your own self for the sake of others, even those that hate you. And time and time again, you're going to have to forgive and you're going to have to love. Some of you might be called to the point of death, but Jesus is actually saying you will have to lay down your life daily. A living sacrifice, Paul would say in Romans 12. And that's the last point I'll make on this verse is the daily idea. If you're banking on the idea that there was this one time when I was 15 years old, when I said the sinner's prayer, prayer and I confess that Jesus is the Messiah and then I just went about my life you're fooled you are completely fooled and I'm here right now to snap you out of that line of thinking Jesus did not go to Peter Peter who am I and Peter went Jesus you're the Messiah and he's like done my job you can head back fishing now on that basis follow me Follow after me and do that daily, Peter. To my youth, again, if I can speak more directly, who I shepherd, Jesus isn't asking you to identify as a Christian because your parents do. He's not asking you to just fill out the denominational box on a census form when you grow up. He's asking you to follow him. That's what he's asking you to do. Young adults, Jesus isn't just calling you to have a nice little Christian friend group that makes you feel secure for the rest of your life. He's calling you to follow after him. And that at times is going to come at the risk of some of your friendships and what they think of you. Like it did with Peter as he stood by himself confessing Jesus the Messiah. Families and parents like myself, 
Jesus is not calling you to a lifestyle of Christianity where that just simply translates to watching PG films, sending your kids to a Christian school and saying grace at the dinner table. He's calling your household to become a place of discipleship where the word of God is the centerpiece and not the Netflix show. You are going to have to deny television and your tablet from raising your kids and you're going to have to do that. And you're going to have to lay yourself over and over and over down for your little ones so that they might know Jesus the Messiah. Your home shouldn't just be a place where prayer is a nicety, but it is the ever-present reality that there is a Lord in your home. And then you can speak with him and he hears you and he cares for you. Married couples, Jesus is not just calling you to the perfect cute little marriage that looks like it's great on Instagram. It's just not meant to be like that. He is calling you as one flesh to follow him. And husbands and wives, let me tell you, it's not a walk in the park. As a husband or as a wife, you're going to have to risk that comfortable place that you put yourself in at home to say, I don't know if we're following the Lord right now. I think we might have walked off the path. I think things are wrong in this house. And you're going to have to pull one another up. And that's going to require a whole lot of humility. And that's going to cost a whole lot of pride being put on the ground to say, yes, I've been rebuked by my wife or husband and I see where I've gone wrong. And sometimes your wife or husband in Christ is going to hurt you so much in your marriage, in fact, more than anyone else ever could. And you're going to have to forgive them. And you're going to have to love them, as your vows say, until death do us part. To singles, Jesus is not calling you to the perfect match. He's calling you to himself. God has planned that some should remain single and that your path might never lead to a partner. But know that you'll enjoy a depth of intimacy with your saviour that you walk with every day, unparalleled to any other. Workaholics, Jesus has not called you to give up your life for the sake of just making it up the corporate ladder, supplying more paper into your bank account or expanding your business. He called you to do his work while you're in this earth. And you're going to have to suffer losses of achievements to follow him. Tell me, how much time do you spend raising a profit or working diligently to get to that next station, to get to that higher salary, versus how much time is actually spent that you think about how does my work actually glorify God, my true work? The profit, the status, the achievements, the secondary. You're called to work for him and not for your daily bread. Those in the later stages of life are about to be. The Lord has not called you to put up your feet on your superannuation and now relax. You're not called to just watch the sunrise and the sunsets and crack a cold one for the rest of your life. He calls you daily to walk with him and that might come at the cost of your desires, of whatever it is you're planning to do with your retirement plans. And to the few who are in the church, who God has placed it in their heart, and I pray so many of this church become, 
The Lord is calling some of you to leave your homes, to leave your families, to leave financial security, to leave it all behind, to become ministers, to become missionaries, to become evangelists, worship leaders, healthcare workers in other countries. God is calling you for something so drastically different. And it's going to cost you so much, but it is going to be so glorious for him and for this world. Suffering is part of walking with Jesus, and it's not always going to be easy. And if we don't embrace this path that he has laid out for us, Jesus says, or he warns us, sorry, you're trying to save your life on earth by going away that I am not going, and in the end you will forfeit it all. And Jesus isn't playing around. He's telling you that if you do not embrace suffering in this world, what you're going to do, what are you doing if you're trying to make suffering small in your life? You're trying to seek comfort in the world. That's what you've done. You don't want to go into suffering with Jesus. You're seeking comfort in the world. And that's why Jesus sets up this kind of wildest dreams. Let's say all your wildest dreams come true. You gain the whole world. You get the job. You get that guy or girl that you're pining after. You get the status. You get the friendships. It doesn't matter. You get everything. You've got it all. Now what? You spent your whole life chasing down all these temporary pleasures, putting all your things that you ever wanted all together, and now what? You gained the world, but you lost your life. You went down all these paths, and Jesus wasn't in any of them. And you did that because you could not, not stand the idea of suffering with Jesus. Let's just get real for two seconds. No one's really suffering to death in Australia for their faith, right? The suffering that you probably experience the most in Australia is embarrassment. It's embarrassment. The fact that you have to sit there and say that I believe the Sunday school lesson that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever shall believe in him, they won't perish, they'll have everlasting life. I believe that God the Father sent his son to be crushed on a cross for my sins and my iniquities so that that would restore a relationship from me back to him and I will gain eternal life. And so we don't find it so embarrassing to say I'm Christian on a census form. We find it embarrassing to say, this is my Messiah, the one on a cross. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, the Messiah, and my message, the fact that this is what I do, then I'm ashamed of you. And understand what he's saying. What do we do when we're ashamed? When something shames us, we disassociate with that thing. We run away from it. Jesus says, well, if you're ashamed of me and you're going to disassociate with me, we'll know that when I am resurrected and I'm glorified and I come back with my father, I'm going to be embarrassed of you before my father. I will disassociate myself from you. My prayer is in this last point is that each one of you, myself included, would pray to God 
and ask, Lord, would I be counted worthy of suffering for your name? And I know that that sounds morbid. And you're probably like, why do we just need to suffer? But hear me out. The apostles, they stood up in the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 with the Pharisees and the scribes. And they said, Jesus is the Messiah who was crucified for our sins. And they told the whole message. And they got beat real bad. It says this afterwards. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Rejoicing. Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Acts 5.41. Jesus said to them, if you follow me, this will happen to you. And they rejoiced. Why? It's not because of the suffering. We're not Christians that sit there and are sadistic and like, hmm, I just love pain. It's the mark that you are with your Lord. We're counted worthy of being followers of Jesus. He said this would happen and it's happening. And this is the beauty if you go through suffering for the name of Jesus. Back in verse 23, he says this, anyone who wants to follow after me, it kind of sounds like repetitious words here. And then he says, it sounds like a repeat here, he says, follow after me. That last word or that last phrase, follow after me, I don't know my Greek very well, but the Greek word is akolutheto, which can also mean joining someone in the journey. You see, when you suffer for him, Jesus is in the journey. Your Lord's with you. How many of us yearn for a more intimate connection with our Lord? You can find it in the suffering. To those that have the conviction that the suffering Messiah is your king, you've laid down your lives for Jesus. To those that not only profess the name, but also join in the suffering, people who know loneliness well because of it, people who have cried themselves to sleep because of it, and they feel like outcasts, they've ridiculed, like I said, butts of jokes. I'll tell you right now, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Jesus doesn't think little of you at all. To those that have actually worked up the courage to go and speak to someone about their Christ and what he has done, and maybe all it's ever done is brought contempt back on you. Jesus isn't embarrassed of you. Your Lord isn't ashamed of you at all. He sees you as his and he is proud to call you friend in front of his father. And that is the goal and the hope of Christianity. Not the suffering, but the one who we're with, the Messiah. He is our reward. He is our goal. In verse 27, I'll finish here. There's a few different kind of differing views and what Jesus is referring to when he says that some won't taste death until the kingdom of God. Some say it's at the transfiguration, that's the next verse is over. Some say it is at the crucifixion, and some say, again, it's at Pentecost. 
I personally, I'm not better than the scholars, so I'm not going to go on an argument. My personal belief is that it's at Pentecost. For as I understand it, it is the Holy Spirit's work to establish the kingdom here on earth. It is him reigning in the hearts of men and women that bring the kingdom of God here. And when it came down like fire, they knew it was upon them and they knew that the kingdom of God had come. Jesus didn't give them empty promises. And I'm not sure how much you understand about the third person of the triune God, but I want to give you just a very tiny quote of J.I. Packers to leave with you. He says this concerning the Holy Spirit. The essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is simply to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit, he is not a force or a power, though he is powerful. He is a person. He's the mediator of your Lord Jesus Christ to come again. He is with you. That's what you get. That's what's so beautiful. Even in Luke, as we carry on, when they, he says that when you pray, pray like this. And when he says your fathers are evil and they give you good gifts, he says anyone who prays, the Holy Spirit will be given to them. He loves to give himself to you. That's the goal and that's the beauty. And the suffering is worth it because of the one that you walk with. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you tell us that you will not leave us as orphans, that you'll come for us. God, that even now in this time between when you had been on earth to your coming again in your glorified state, that the Holy Spirit, you Holy Spirit are with us, that the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us here on earth. I thank you that nothing is wasted, not even the pain and the suffering in the world, but all of it is made to lift you high. In your son's precious name I pray, amen.